Well, it's time to bust out your fireworks, grab your friends and family, and celebrate the 4th of July. Happy American Independence Day. May America continue to be grateful for the freedom well fought for. Let us thank those throughout our 247-year history. Stand tall and proud, my friends. May your hearts be filled with pride and patriotism for this great nation. My friends, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 4th of July, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This podcast centered on the history of Greenwich, Connecticut, is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town of Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. Since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history. And so with that, I congratulate you. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show, especially on this wonderful holiday. The Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, you know what? We've got another great show for you. So without any further delay, let's get started. Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our visit will take us to Lafayette Cottage in Belhaven, made possible on today's show by Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard. We continue to observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department on crimes and misdemeanors. Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated and revised edition of another Greenwich history book before and after 17th. 76 chronology of the town of Greenwich. On today's show, we will look back at years 1782 through 1786. In other historical news, you'll hear more about how the people of Greenwich, Connecticut observed the 4th of July in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, there were reports in 1900 that William Rockefeller was personally involved in the building of a then-new railroad station in Greenwich. But the question arose, was it fake news? You'll find out. As schools are out for the summer, there was discussion and some debate about whether or not to have school vacations. I'll have more details about that. Back in 1905, it was possible to ride trolleys from New York to Greenwich. It was a quote-unquote lovely trolley ride, according to press reports in charming Greenwich, Connecticut. Hmm. Let's see, I'll also share an account of a Revolutionary War-era raid on a Mead family farm in North Greenwich, one that resulted in the death of young Obadiah Mead. My friends, there's lots to see, to do, and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, one of America's more, most interesting and extraordinary communities. We're going to have all this and a whole lot more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. A 
a landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. My friends, don't gamble with your health. Eastern Neurological Services offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Its principal, Dr. Xiaoke Gao, MD, is a top New York neurologist who practices in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurologic Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders. You'd be glad to know that Eastern Neurological Services provides general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Visit easternneurologic.com, that's easternneurologic.com, or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. It's a fact of life that our health is important. Contact Eastern Neurologic today. You'll be glad you did. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. The Town of Greenwich's annual 4th of July Independence Day ceremony will be held at Greenwich Town Hall, 101 Field Point Road, on Tuesday, 4th of July, of course, 2023, beginning at 9 a.m. This event is open to the public. The ceremony features a raising of the American flag. There will be a salute to the patriots who served during the Revolution and uh, other items on the agenda. There will be music and an American flag birthday cake for all to enjoy after the conclusion of the ceremony. We hope to see you there. Victorian Summer 
The Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history from the Gilded Age. Featuring beautiful photos and ephemera, the book is the culmination of decades of work and research, taking its readers to the development of Belhaven Park during America's Gilded Age. On today's show, our journey will take us to Lafayette Cottage. In Belhaven, its principal owner was Henry H. Adams, Jr. He was also the architect. It was built in 1892, and its address is 76 Bush Avenue. Lafayette Cottage. Well, that's a name to, uh, to remember, especially this being the 4th of July. <laughs> All right, on with the story. Belhaven Park exerted such a powerful hold over its early inhabitants, they saw it as something like an intimate version of Newport, that it's no wonder their children often settled on the same tree-lined streets and sometimes married other neighborhood sons and daughters. Henry Herschel Adams, Jr., who lived from 1875 to 1946, son of the great patriot who lived in the Lamb and Rich Shingle-style house at 87 Mayo Avenue, built his own house quite similar to the house of his upbringing at 76 Bush Avenue, directly behind his parents. Little is known about Adams Jr., except that by the available evidence, he seemed to have followed precisely in his father's footsteps, a proud military career, serving in both the Spanish-American War and First World War, achieving the rank of colonel like his father, followed by work with Adams Sr. in the iron ore and coal trades. Adams Jr. occasionally cropped up in the society pages, but the most intriguing reference to him appeared in the Greenwich graphic of April 19, 1912. His wealthy cousin, William Ernest Carter and family of Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, had just survived the sinking of the Titanic and been carried back to New York aboard the Carpathia, later sunk by a German torpedo in 1918. Adams went to meet them on the docks. Present were the four carters, a maid, and a manservant. Absent was the carter chauffeur, the only one of the bunch traveling in second class, who went down with the ship along with the family Airedales. Given the Adams family love of tradition and continuity, it should come as no surprise that Adams Jr., also built a simple but tasteful shingle-style house atop bluestone footings. It was painted, like his father's place, colonial yellow with white trim. Adams is listed as the architect. We should not suppose, however, that he spent any time hunched over a drafting board. Though similar to his parents' house, the Adams Jr. house is almost an exact copy of Reddington Cottage, on the nearby Lower Otter Rock Drive. And if you go to the book, you can see a, a picture of that and all um, on page 70. The only extant visual record of that cottage, an etching published in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in 1899, shows the same widow's walk, the same double-windowed dormers in each of the roofs for hips, the same four windows across the second-story front facade, the same piazza extending across the first story, and the same broad chimney running through the center of the house. The main difference appears to be Adam's addition of a portraiture crowned with a pediment gable. 
It is likely that Adams either took his idea from a set of published plans or had a carpenter builder model his cottage closely on the Reddingtons, whose house listed no architect and may itself have sprung from a pattern book. That house would be demolished and later replaced by the gatehouse for the topping estate. The first floor was essentially a square divided into equal quadrants, reception hall, parlor, dining room, and kitchen. Each had its own large fireplace built off the central stack as in colonial dwellings. The second floor closely echoed the first with four bedrooms connected by a wide hallway and servants' quarters above. Lafayette's carriage house was consumed in the 1940 fire that started at the Senior Adams Carriage House and spread to two adjacent structures. The carriage house was replaced, this time in fireproof stucco. Today, the main house has been lovingly restored by its owner. Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard is available for borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library system. You can go to your favorite or nearest branch of the Greenwich Library or you can go online to GreenwichLibrary.org. Well, my friends, why not consider purchasing a copy of this wonderful book about Bellhaven? It's a great book, and it's one I strongly recommend. You can purchase a copy. Visit GreenwichHistory.org. You can also call 203-869-6899. Or if you wish, visit your favorite book vendor. best-kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted best coffee shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own, a popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of Coffee for Good... 
Your next tire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on-the-job training platform with Ableist for people with special needs? Well, it's true. It graduates or its graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org, and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store and artist's cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup. Ample free parking member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. The Greenwich Observer was Greenwich's first uh, home paper, if you will, it was published and printed um, here in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, back in the um, in the late nineteenth century. And I have a July 4, eighteen seventy eight um, uh, editorial, I suppose you might say, and it's on the subject of school vacations. Now that uh, all of the schools are out, commencements um, have been completed. Uh, many uh, are now on vacation, um, either here at home or. Um, elsewhere in the um, in the region or beyond, um, this is something that I thought was rather intriguing, uh, coming from the uh, the late uh, years of the nineteenth century. And again, this is about school vacations. Perhaps no one, no, perhaps excuse me, we can perform at no more acceptable uh, office just now than to say a few words in regard to the subject which should greatly interest our people. The question as to whether or not it is desirable to have two months vacation during the excessively warm months of July and August. As we understand it, there is no law laid down in the uh, premise and in the, uh, uh, let's see, I can't see what that says, the vision of having or the decision of having two months vacation um, hobbled in one of the natural outgrowth of a careful study of our school system and the hygienic principles involved in school life. We do not understand that it was brought about, no doubt some presumed to believe, in the interest of the teachers, but that it was found necessary for the well-being of the pupils. The main point made by those who take a position in favor of curtailing the school vacation is that it will, quote, keep the children out of the streets on more months, unquote. None presume, we think, to say that the economy will be studied by the change. 
It is an established, hence an incontrovertible fact that as much or more has been accomplished under the present system as when July was included in the term of school duties. As regards the teachers, while they are unquestionably uh, uh, unfitted by the healthful relaxation of their duties, yet there will be no trouble in finding those who will readily teach 52 weeks if required to do so. The question with regard to them is whether they can teach as well. We contend they cannot, for the same reason that your clergyman, lawyer, doctor, etc., cannot find it possible to practice their profession acceptably to you or credibly to themselves unless they become invigorated by rest and relaxation. The old saw that, quote, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy cuts a teacher's block as keenly as dominies. I don't know what that means. Oh, well, (laughs) that's just what it says. But it is also benefiting the children. This two-month vacation, it was found first that a full attendance could not be, and during the heated term, that it would dwindle down to one-half its usual average, and that if any advancement was made when the children returned to their labors, the classes were either forced to take a turn back or the school must be subdivided into many grades and classes. It was seen, second, that the hot season was unsuitable for mental progress and development. The brain, as well as the body, being affected by atmospheric influences, that organ becomes sluggish in its operation, the mind dull and lethargic, appealing with its natural force for the same rest which, quote, children of larger growth take, unquote, take good care to give their precious persons. Colleges and seminaries, realizing this important fact, set the example of closing their doors a month earlier, and the public schools wisely followed the precept. A superheated schoolroom, we say superheated understandably, for in addition to the fierce heat rays that the two or three hundred bodies contributed their animal heat to the temperature, is prejudiced to the health of your children. Cooped up in badly ventilated rooms, the body weakened by the exhaustive extraneous influences, the brain drawing heavily upon the physical resources to keep that organ supplied with pure blood to meet the active operations of the mind, the health of a child is rapidly undermined and its physique, if not ruined, is materially damaged. The law of reaction is unalterable as is fixed in its reactions as any other of the wise and indelible laws of God. The appetite of the child is feeble, and its vital forces are weakened during the heated term. If compelled to do manual labor, the supply of active brain-forming tissue is not up to the demand, first because the usual food prepared in summer does not contain as much of the let's see the principle and the second because the child does not take it or prepared into the system as the body or if you prefer or if you please in so much does not let's see work for but pro contra will reject it i have no idea what i'm reading but this is what it says the atmospheric currents are not as strong in summer hence the ventilation not as perfect 
Consequently, the rooms become impregnated or over overdosed with ventilated air. What is that? The, the seed of many a case of consumption and bronchial affection are shown in these germinators of disease and death. Who of you would care to trust the contents of your granaries and stores to in a rotten hulk <laughs> to force education into the capita of your children at the expense of health is like putting a valuable cargo into a vessel with holes in its bottom and rottenness in its timbers. The children need rest, and for them to rest is to romp, play, be happy, carefree, regardless of time, place, and circumstance. To rest is to be reasonably free from regulation, wholly from the rigid discipline of school life. They want change of scenery, need fresh whiffs of air in their little lungs, now new sights for their inquiring ideas, other thoughts for their wandering intellects. To go into woods, chase butterflies, uh, gather flowers, chat all day with Mama, or go with pop, Papa to his work and, quote, wish over, let's see, over so much they were as big as he so they could help him and surprise him with il illustrations of, let's see, wheat um, or what um, will do when they are <laughs> great big men, unquote. We fear, sadly fear, the class who would take these privileges away from the little ones uh, were never children themselves. There were always philosophers, economists, wise, wise acres. I, maybe that's wisecracks. No butterfly, huck-chuck days for them. They didn't believe in them. Either this or that despicable portion of the community who, quote, send their children to school to get rid of them, unquote. God forbid them, the little chatterbox with mouth filled with bread and molasses and little words makes no music for them. They are, quote, a bother and hence send them to school to have them out of the way and, quote, not in the streets, even the privilege of the common highway are denied them. Hmm. We insist that the, uh, the, the rest who... Uh, were never boys should not presume to set rules for those who are, and the second who have brought pests into the world should not inflict their odious rules upon the little blossoms which make our lives fragrant with their sweet, beautiful, angelic ways. <laughs> Give the children rest, refreshment, and romp for two months. In return, you will have, in the end, sound vessels richly laden with learning, love, and life. Well, I could live with that, can't you? And again, <laughs> that came from the Greenwich Observer. And let's see, this was published on July 4th, 1878 on the second page. It's a bit confusing, but if you get through um, all the wordiness and all that, it's actually a very, very sound argument, if you ask me. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead, that's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. 
Greenwich Before 2000 is a book that was published as an updated, revised edition of another Greenwich history book, Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Going through year 1999, Greenwich Before 2000 was a project by the Greenwich Historical Society that was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He is another descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, whose numerous philanthropic bequests have advanced the preservation of the town's history. For that, we are very grateful. On today's show, celebrating the 4th of July, American Independence Day, we will look at what happened in Greenwich in the year 1782, 1783, and 1785. And um, let's do the first part of 1786. All right. In 1782, estates of 25 inhabitants of Greenwich who, quote, have gone over to the enemy, unquote, are declared forfeit and confiscated. Those people would be called loyalists. On February 7, 1782, a raiding party of Delancey's Tories rides from North Castle toward Horseneck by way of King Street, falls upon a small guard of General Waterbury's force, kills one, takes four soldiers and several inhabitants prisoner, and plunders two houses. On February 15th of 1782, with his boats frozen in the ice, of the Mayanus River, quote, which divides Greenwich Old Society from the rest of the town, unquote. Jabez Fitch and his crew are attacked by 80 light dragoons and a force of infantry bent on destroying the flotilla and running off cattle. Fitch retreats, quote, toward Greenwich Meeting House, unquote, with 17 of his men, followed by the enemy's cavalry. Troops from Fort Stamford under General Waterbury arrive in time to drive off the marauders and retake all but a few cattle. On May 30th, the boats Jay and Hawk, each with one gun and a crew of ten, are confiscated or commissioned sorry, to raid British and Hessian camps and their shipping, and they are bonded for $20,000 apiece by Isaac Jones and John Davenport of Stamford and Samuel Lockwood of Greenwich. In 1783, on August 12th of that year, a town meeting resolution asks that burdens of the late war be equally shared, that tax abatement be considered for Greenwich, and that the General Assembly reimburse not only losses and damages occasioned by the enemy, but also those, quote, occasioned by this being a garrison town and its inhabitants harassed and distressed by both parties, unquote. General John Meade is appointed agent of the town to secure from the General Assembly or otherwise, quote, redress of the town grievances, unquote. On December 8th of 1783, the town meeting resolves that the selectmen should not allow those, quote, who have gone over and joined the enemy during the late war, unquote, to reside in Greenwich. In 1785, on March 3rd of that year, Mr. Murdoch is dismissed by the Second Congregational Church for his loyalist sympathies. And Mr. Murdoch would be, I believe, as I recall, the senior minister of the church at the time. On March 23rd, 1785, the Reverend Robert Morris is installed as minister to the First Congregational Church. On October 14th, General Parsons offers for sale the 151-acre farm at Horseneck, 
granted him by the state of Connecticut in 1781 in exchange for obligations held by him against the state. The rate is four pounds, 10 shillings per acre. And then the Reverend Nathaniel Finch settles as pastor to the Baptists and remains there until 1824. That's a long time. And in 1786, on October, or excuse me, April 6th of that year, floor room on the gallery of the First Society Meeting House is for sale by bid. Persons purchasing must build their pews by June 1787. Ten pew spaces are sold to the net of the society at um, six pounds, 18 shillings. And finally, for the year 1786, on October 18th of that year, the Reverend Isaac Lewis is installed as minister of the Second Society. We would know it today, of course, as the Second Congregational Church. Greenwich Before 2000 is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. Please visit GreenwichLibrary.org. The following comes from the July 4, 1878 edition of the Greenwich Observer. It's probably one of the uh, earliest uh, published uh, commentaries, if you will, uh, and editorials about uh, the 4th of July. Um, the publisher or editor, I should say, was William Mead Keeler. Uh, we might be related, we might not, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> these are the words of the, um, of the editorial as it is uh, printed. July 4th, a res- retrospection. Tomorrow, the 4th, we record the 102nd year of the independence of the American nation. That day, the retrospective view be taken of the Hegels of our country made to free herself from the government of Great Britain, the advancement of the arts and sciences uh, in our land during a century of years, the wars which have since fought without failure, and a great victories we have each time achieved. And lastly, the waging of a civil war of unprecedented magnitude for the continuance of this nation's freedom, during which the shackles were stricken from many hundreds of thousands of slaves. Tomorrow will the people of Greenwich remember that their town is entitled to special mention in the records of the Great Revolution. Like most New England towns, Greenwich, in the golden time called Horseneck, was a graphic colonial history of the times when the Mohegans skulked through the forest, waging unrelenting wars, and later, during the pre-revolutionary struggle, it comes into notice from a point of Governor or Governor Tryon's attack, and the old escape of Putnam down the precipitous hill, an incident which will be remembered to the end of time. A hundred years ago, the village of Greenwich was strikingly different in appearance from the present. The first house approaching the settlement from the west by the old mail route from New York to Boston was that of Colonel Richard Meads, whose father, Dr. Amos Meade, was surgeon of the 3rd Connecticut Regiment at Ticonderoga in 1759. A short, a short distance farther on was the residence of General John Meade, who should be long remembered by the people of this town. He was born here in 1725 and was the son of John and Elizabeth Lockwood Meade. 
General Meade was a member of the Connecticut legislature 19 consecutive years. He declined a commission as captain sent him by King George of England, entered the American army, and was promoted from major to lieutenant colonel and to general. His house, which is just below the American lines, was repeatedly plundered, his cattle driven off, and his own and family's lives greatly endangered by the Tories and cowboys. His buildings were torn to pieces, his fences burned, and in various ways he was a much he was so much abused that he eventually was forced to leave the town. In seventeen fifty five he married Benjamin Brush's daughter Mary. She died in 1785, and he again married Mehetable, widow of Jonathan Peck. Looking back to a hundred years ago, we see no highway cutting its path through Putts Hill on the eastern part of the village. The only road was the old one that turned from the top of the hill to the left and taking a circuitous route, ran along to its base and thence easterly. To in its present course. By the way, remnants of that uh, that road are still there. Um, it's been referred to as the Switchback Road, and um, if you pause very carefully, and if you're driving on the westbound uh, side of uh, what we know as East Putnam Avenue today, and you're just um, before Old Church Road, you can look over uh, without uh, hopefully taking your eyes off the, uh, the road if you're driving, and uh, you can actually see remnants of that switchback road along and on the hillside there. It was here that a century or years ago, Israel Putnam, closely pursued by the British, not daring to waste time to follow the old and then only road, spurred up his steed and dashing over the hill's rugged edge and down its rocky slope, reaching the roadway below in safety, while the bullets from his pursuer's rifles rattled on the rocks he had left behind. The British, fearing to make the hazardous descent and with vexation at their own cowardice and failure, watched old Putnam till he rode out of sight. A hundred years ago there stood on the brow of Putnam's Hill a little church. With the march of time it was long ago swept away, and now to mark the spot remains but a few crumbling pieces of our forefathers' tombstones, their once familiar inscriptions entirely obliterated. The burying ground itself is overgrown with briars and thorns, yet quiet today. It overlooks the scene of Putnam's wonderful exploit and tumult of the warriors on the plain below. And thus it seems that every rock and mound of earth in Greenwich holds a record of its own regarding the days of the Revolution in the astonishing events in which our village was rich in the possession. Though the celebration of the anniversary of these old-time occurrences may not be very grand in our historical town, we think the void will be suitably filled by the hearty recollection of the same by the citizens now enjoying the liberties our heroic fathers purchased for them. This story comes from the year 1882, was published on July 8th in the Greenwich Graphic, Various ways in which Greenwich people observed the day, of course, the celebration of the 4th, picnics, fishing, parties, and excursions, a wet afternoon, and fireworks. And the story goes as follows. The 4th of July, 1882, has come and gone, and our national summer holiday is over. It was a day very much like those of previous years, in the way in which it was celebrated, in the number of accidents that happened and the rain that fell. 
It always rains on the 4th of July, and this year was not an exemption. And it is generally very warm. In this respect, there was a difference, for the day was decidedly cool. In the evening of the 3rd, the racket began. All night, the crack of the crackers and report of the pistols and the laughing and shout of boys and men was plainly heard. And when, in the early morn, the bell rang out long and loud, the fourth was fairly ushered in, and there was little sleep for anyone. Nothing occurred of startling nature about town. There was no public celebration or public gathering, and each and every one spent the day as smited, uh, suited their fancy. Sorry, With the exception of the noise, all was quiet and orderly. At an early hour, baskets accompanied by individuals, uh, persons embracing fish poles, picnic parties, wagons, loads of people from Round Hill, Stanwich, Glenville, and other places were seen wending their way in the direction of the Sound or Round Island. Many went to the cities and towns and from hence to Glen Island and other resorts, while many more came from the cities to spend the day here, and others remained at home and enjoyed the quiet and rest of their country homes. About noon the rain began to fall, and soon after the picnic parties, the fishermen and trotters sought places of shelter or turned their faces towards home, the rain seemingly putting a damper on their spirits and pleasure. About six o'clock the clouds broke and scattered, and here and there patches of the blue sky were visible, which gave prospects of a pleasant evening for fireworks. It was understood that a number of our residents were to celebrate in this way, and many started out with an idea of seeing the sights. Quite a crowd of people collected about the residence of Mr. Havemeyer and witnessed a fine display of fireworks. Some of the pieces were quite costly and elegant. The grounds of Dr. Jones were handsomely illuminated with Chinese lanterns. Also, the residences of Messrs. John Sniffen, DeYoung, Sexus, and many others. The Indian Harbor Hotel and Kent House were both brilliantly illuminated and presented pretty sights. About 10 p.m., the rain again commenced to fall, and the air became quite cool, so much so that indoors was decided decidedly preferable to the outside, and the people withdrew to their firesides, to the quiet of their homes, many to indulge in social festivities, and not a few to retire for the night. Another 4th of July has come and gone, making the 105th from the Declaration of Independence. The July 8, 1882 edition of the Greenwich Observer also reported on the glorious 4th as celebrated in Greenwich, and we have it as follows. The preparations for the due observance of, quote, the day we celebrate, unquote, were in most cases completed the day before, and the result was that early on Monday evening the village began to put on a holiday appearance. The streets were thronged, and fireworks, torpedoes, etc. resounded on all sides. As the darkness grew, the revelry increased, and the services of several small cannon were in requisition to duly usher in the fourth. Tired householders wooed sleep in vain, but not till well on in the morning did the noise cease. The sun rose on Tuesday morning with every promise of a fine day, but the weather-wise were skeptical, 
and relied on their observations of previous anniversaries, declared that rain would surely come. To be sure, Prophet DeVoe of Hackensack had given assurance of a fine day, but as usual his prophecies failed of realization. Still, the forenoon was pleasant enough, but in the afternoon the rain came down lively and continued with but little uh, intermission the rest of the day. Greenwich, however, had provided for no special observance of the occasion, and no amount of the rain could dampen the ardor of the boys who indulged in the various explosives to their heart's content. A number from the village attended the firemen's picnic at Port Chester, another party visited Glen Island in search of attractions, and other places in the neighborhood were similarly resorted to by pleasure-seekers. The various bar rooms were freely patronized, but sobriety and good nature reigned throughout the day. In the evening, Greenwich Avenue was a blaze of light from the continuous explosion of torpedoes, the neighborhood of Merritt Saloon being the central point. Rockets cleaved the air in all directions, chiefly from the yachts in the harbor and the various hotels from the residences of Messrs. Warburton, H.O. Havemeyer, and Harry Peck, and from in front of Ray's building. From Mr. Rockefeller's place, numerous fire balloons were sent up, making a very pretty appearance. So for private residences and grounds, noticeably those of Messrs. Havemeyer, J.H. Sniffen, and Dr. Jones, were tastefully illuminated with Chinese lanterns. A large display of bunting was everywhere visible. The citizens' band did not turn out, possibly on account of the threatening appearance of the weather and the absence of a bandstand, but no excuse will avail them next forth. At 10.30 o'clock, most of the revelers had gone home, exhausted from the labors of the day. An hour later, the village was wrapped in sound slumber, and the July 4th, 1882 existed only as a memory. For the 4th of July... In the year 1899, we have the following, and this was published on July 8th in the Greenwich Graphic. Um, A couple of short stories, if you will. The first one is A Noisy Fourth Indeed. Those in town who succeeded in getting any sleep after 12 o'clock Tuesday morning may consider themselves favorites of quote-unquote Old Morpheus. (laughs) Shortly after midnight, the bells of the Congregational and Methodist churches pealed forth a merry welcome to the fourth but this welcome was quite distressing to many. It appears that some young men gained an entrance to the churches through a window and were thus able to go about their work as they pleased. Hmm. Shortly after the bells began to ring, the cannons and firecrackers commenced their day's contribution to the noise, and after it was hard for anyone to get a wink of sleep. Hmm. The day was passed with many pleasures, picnics and outings, ball games and other sports being the attractions. The schoolhouse grounds were thronged with people who had come to witness the two games which were played between the Amarjerome Baseball Club of Greenwich and the Brighton Baseball Club of Brooklyn. There were but few accidents and those were confined to a few burnt fingers caused by too free use of powder. And then we have this story, um, Putnam Hill Park is the headline on it, and it says, by next Monday, the borough will be, will have completed, rather, its work about Putnam Hill Park. The placing of the large boulder and the flagpole 
which will be done by the Putnam Hill chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, remains to complete the work about this pretty and historic little spot. The park is about 40 feet square, and around it runs a road where carriages can go and from which a fine view of the surrounding country may be enjoyed. Satis have been placed there for the comfort of pedestrians. The marking thus of the spot near where Putnam took his famous leap is due to the efforts of the Daughters of the American Revolution, D.A.R., and serves to illustrate the good the ladies of such organizations can accomplish in making conspicuous the spots about a town made famous by connection with revolutionary incidents. Celebrating the 4th of July in Greenwich on the or in the year 1904 was, according to the headline, an ideal day and people put in their whole time enjoying it. Uh, and the, <laughs> the story goes as follows. And this is from the Greenwich Graphic, of course. There, was, there is more latent patriotism in Greenwich than there are feathers in an egg, <laughs> whatever that means. And it is much more easily proven. Last Monday, the national birthday was celebrated in town with as much noise and enthusiasm as ever. And some nervous people claim with more than ever before, <laughs> before sunrise, yes, even the night before the noise began. And except in the middle of the day, it was continuous until late on Monday night. Those advocates of a, quote, quiet fourth, unquote, may live to see the day when noisemaking will not be the chief aim of young America. But it will be a sad day for American patriotism when the boys and girls are not allowed to burn powder and make a racket. We wouldn't be the individual who would attempt to repress the juvenile enthusiasm any more than we would be a nominee on the populist ticket. Hmm. The day in Greenwich passed off in great shape. It was one of the pleasantest fourths within the memory of anyone. The sun shone all day, but there was a fresh breeze from off the water, and the temperature was very agreeable. No rain came in the evening as usual, but at night, when the time for the polytechnics, or the pyrotechnics, rather, came, the sky was ablaze with rockets, Roman candles, balloons, and other handsome pieces which dazzle the eyes, please the senses, and make an awful smell. <laughs> Standing at the railway station, one could see the glare of the rockets from Sound Beach to Byram Shore. Perhaps the finest display was that given by the Indian Harbor Yacht Club at the clubhouse. An immense crowd gathered, townspeople as well as members, and during the whole evening the discharge of pieces was continuous. And they were very beautiful and well received, with many exclamations of delight by the people present to witness them. The courtesy of the club in allowing others to enjoy the display was greatly appreciated. During the day, a series of motorboat races were sailed over the clubhouse, or the club course, rather. At the Greenwich Casino, the day was one of the pleasantest, and genial superintendent Mr. Clift remembers. The air was cool, a refreshing breeze coming off the water, and the house was full of the members and their friends all day and evening. The harbor was crowded with craft, all gaily decked with flags and the national banner, and parties were going from one to the other in launches and rowboats making calls and extended greetings. 
The great event of the day, however, was the children's entertainment in the afternoon. The spacious assembly room of the casino was filled with the children of the members with a good sprinkling of their elders. The entertainment was planned specially for the younger ones, and that they were satisfied was attested by the applause and shouts of approval. Juggling ventriloquism and tidywinks, tiddlywinks rather, pleased them, but Dudley and comic character sketches fairly overwhelmed them, exciting roars of laughter which continued until the tears came. The children had been made happy by the presentation of a handsome silk flag to each child by Mr. George A. Helm, a member of the entertainment committee, and when the orchestra struck up the star-spangled banner, they all arose and waved their flags in time with the music. It made an inspiring sight and taught the lesson of patriotism and the love of the flag, which was one purpose of Mr. Helm's gift. At the close of the entertainment, the children danced, enjoyed refreshments of ice cream, cake, and lemonade, and pronounced the afternoon a most glorious success. In the evening, a dance was given to the members in the assembly room. There were about 300 present, and while the younger ones enjoyed the dreamy movements of waltz and two-step, the elders watched them in contentment and occasionally going outside to see the fireworks display. This was not an association enterprise. The several cottagers had their own pyrotechnics, but altogether made a very handsome show. The display of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club could also be seen from the balconies and, quote, the rocket's red glare, unquote, eliminated the water in great shape. In addition to the brilliancy of the scene were the illuminations on the yachts at at anchor off the casino. All of them had lights out, but the handsomest were Mr. Frank J. Gould's steam yacht, which had over 500 electric lights strung over the rigging and on the decks, lights of all colors of the rainbow. Further away was the English yacht surf of Mr. Billings, which was the which was also brilliantly lighted by electric lamps and gave Mr. Gould a close rub for first place. The Eastport Chester people and the residents along the Byram shore had their own fireworks display given on the island belonging to Colonel Henry Huss. This was simply grand. There were, besides the rockets and pieces of like nature, aerial maroons, mines, bombs, bombettes, and in one particular called, quote-unquote, our empire. <laughs> this was a mammoth shell, which at the height of a thousand feet released a large bomb of red, green, blue, and white stars, representing the United States, followed by a gold shell representing Cuba, a silver shell for Puerto Rico, and a number of smaller shells for the Philippines. The final device was an American shield surrounded by an eagle with outstretched wings and heraldic colors. It was very elaborate and greatly pleased the big crowd of spectators who lined the shore on both sides of the river and occupied a small flotilla of boats on the water. So far as is known, there were no serious accidents. There were a few burns, some powder marks disfigured the faces of one or two boys, and that is about all. The warning against blank cartridges was apparently unheeded, for there were hundreds of them, and the users were often careless in discharging their revolvers. 
The golf links in all directions were occupied all day. It was an ideal day for golf, though the wind was a little too strong at times. But it was cool, and even the caddies who take the heat calmly enjoyed the refreshment of the breeze. Now is the time to register your children for Greenwich Historical Society's Art and History Summer Camp 2023. Come explore Connecticut's colonial history and the Coscobart colony through games, crafts, and hands-on fun. Creative young minds will spend time in the Society's historic gardens and barn, exploring their surroundings using art, science, and old-fashioned ingenuity under the guidance of professional educators and artists. Act now. The first summer camp starts July 10th. All camps are 9.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Space is limited. Learn more and register at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203 869 6899. The town of Greenwich's annual 4th of July Independence Day ceremony will be held at Greenwich Town Hall, 101 Field Point Road, on Tuesday, 4th of July, of course, 2023, beginning at 9 a.m. This event is open to the public. The ceremony features a raising of the American flag. There will be a salute to the patriots who served during the Revolution and uh, other items on the agenda. There will be music and an American flag birthday cake for all to enjoy after the conclusion of the ceremony. We hope to see you there. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. I have a story that dates from July 8th, 1905, featured in the Greenwich Graphic, and its uh, headline is Lovely Trolley Rides. Um, there was a time when trolley tracks uh, were through Greenwich, and uh, you could take a trolley from Larchmont to Stamford through Mamaroneck, Rye, and Portchester in Greenwich, as the story states, um, and um, it must have been a lovely uh, experience, although a very, very slow one, by certainly by today's standards. And let me just share this with you again. This is from Saturday, July 8th, 1905 in the Greenwich Graphic. In charming Greenwich, quote-unquote, is the way the New York Herald puts it. And the story goes as follows. In a page-illustrated article in the New York Herald of Sunday last are descriptions of trolley rides about New York City. One of the pictures shows a trolley car climbing Putz Hill. Of course, Putz Hill is here in Greenwich. The trolley ride from Larchmont to Stamford through Mamaroneck, Rye, Porchester, and Greenwich is famous as being one of the most picturesque in the country. Passing, as the line does, through busy towns, out into the open, through the woods, over the meadows, and along the Sound. The Sound, of course, being Long Island Sound. The Herald says... Taking the course of the spoke of electric track reaching from Manhattan as the center of the wheel toward the New England country, a delightful route runs directly to Stamford, Connecticut, with various little side trips added, if one has the time. 
The Larchmont car starts at New Rochelle, running on to Stamford, 35 miles from New York, and passes through Mamaroneck, Harrison, Rye, Porchester, Belhaven, Greenwich, and Coscob. From the suburban elegance of New Rochelle, one is plunged immediately into real country as the trek runs toward Larchmont. Connection is made here for Larchmont Manor, and there is another trolley at Rye running down to the beach. All these villages are practically on the sound, though the trolley line keeps far enough back from the shore to prevent a sight of the water. After crossing the Byron River, which divides the state of New York from Connecticut, the car skirts an inlet near Belhaven, affording a glorious sight of the country homes on the shore, and the eye then travels across the stretch of water where the sound broadens, and it takes in the gleaming white sails flecking the blue sea. Greenwich is the next stop. Then the car rolls on through the village, Putnam Avenue, with its huge shade trees meeting overhead and fine country homes bordering the broad thoroughfare. Only lack of time prevents the traveler from stopping here to explore this charming place. Toward the outskirts of Greenwich, the trolley drops suddenly down Putman's Hill, Putnam's Hill, giving a glimpse of the monument marking the spot where General Israel Putnam made his wild dash down the rocky steep on horseback with the British cavalry in hot pursuit. Beyond the descent stretches the beautiful valley of Cascab, named for one of the famous Indian chiefs. By the way, to cut in here, we actually really don't know <laughs> why Cascab is named Cascab. It, uh, um, it certainly apparently is not um, uh, of an Indian chief, but oh well. Anyway, to finish up the story, less picturesque than Greenwich Village, Stamford is, however, larger and more pretentious and is set further back from the sound. And that, my friends, comes from the July 8th, 1905 edition of the Greenwich Graphic. By the way, in that same edition, we have um, another story. Perhaps this would be a, um, a good time to share it with you. And this one is about fast motorboats uh, race, Indian Harbor Yacht Club Regatta on the 4th of July. Again, uh, in the uh, July 8th, 1905 edition of the Greenwich Graphic. The 4th at the Indian Harbor Yacht Club was a quiet one this year because it was decided to abjure fireworks, etc. But it was one full of interest for the large number of people who spent the afternoon and evening there. The principal feature of the day was the motorboat race, which took place in the afternoon and in which were entered some of the fastest boats of their type in the country. It was thought that Mr. Alexander Stein's new boat, recently completed at Montel Shipyard and expected to be the fastest of her kind afloat, would race, but when the time arrived, it was found that she was not fully prepared. The boats were divided into three classes. The Argo, owned by Mr. C.L. Seabury of the Columbia Yacht Club, winning the first class. The Challenger, owned by Mr. W.G. Brokaw of the New York Yacht Club, winning the second class. And the Luciana, owned by Mr. W.J. Hewlett of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, winning the cruising class. The Dixie, entered by Mr. E.R. Thomas of the Semwenhaka Yacht Club, became disabled during the race and had to drop out. 
The course was 28 miles long for the first and second classes, and the best time was that made by the Argo, which covered the distance in one hour and nine minutes. Let's see, the course for the cruising class was 18 and a half miles. The Luciano Jr.'s owner protested the Narquisi, that's the name of a boat, for going the wrong side of a buoy off Greenwich Point. The protest was sustained, and the Narquisi being ruled out, the first prize was given to the Lucania Jr. In the evening, a table de court dinner was served to members and guests. This was followed by a dance in which there were fully 100 couples. Generally a pleasant week, cloudy forenoons changed to bright afternoons. The haymakers have been in fine weather and the rattle of mowing machines and the hay tutters have been heard all the week. Unlike the glorious fourth of the past 20 years, there was neither showers nor threatening clouds to mar the enjoyment of the day. Good news has come uh, here in the early years of the 21st century, and that regards the renovations that will be coming up to the Greenwich Railroad Station. Um, it has apparently not been done uh, since the building was built. I believe that was in the mid-1970s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I have a little story that um, dates from July 7th, 1900, that kind of parallels what... Um, what we're going to be treated to very soon here in the early years of the 21st century. This one regards the Greenwich Station and a gentleman rather familiar to us here in Greenwich by the name of William Rockefeller. And the headline says, William Rockefeller picking out the site park about the building. William Rockefeller, the largest individual stockholder and a director of the New York, New Haven and Hartford Railroad Company, was recently been in Greenwich personally negotiating, it is said, for the purchase of land opposite the, tra the railroad station. The company wants the land for the purpose of enlarging its present facilities in Greenwich. The company intends to build the finest station in Greenwich on the line between New York and Boston. When the four-tracking work was being done in Greenwich, the old station was altered, and it was understood then that it was, all, was only a temporary expedient until the company could perfect its plans for a new structure there. This station and the grounds above it are wholly inadequate for, uh, to the needs of the place, for, by actual count, between two and three hundred fine private equipages are crowded into the narrow roadway, waiting for trains to depart and arrive every morning and afternoon. And the animated scene of high-spirited horses, glittering carriages, traps, for hands and fancy vehicles, liveried coachmen and footmen, and finely dressed women waiting at the station is one of the sites of this railroad. About an eighth of a mile west of the station, the company owns seven acres of land. It borders on the bay that makes up from the sound on the south where, oh, and there is a hotel on the land. Here the company intends to build the new station. The building is to be fine, but the surroundings will be the feature. They will be made into a perf as perfect a, a park as the best landscape gardener can lay out, with drives winding about the beautiful elm trees and flower beds adding color to the handsome lawns, 
Work will not be begun until late in the fall. The present passenger station will be converted into a freight station. And apparently that comes from New York papers, as it is uh, indicated. Um, let's see, there's an extension of this uh, story, and it goes as follows. The above is another of the many Greenwich news items sent out from Greenwich concocted from rumor for the purpose of making a dollar or two. It appeared first in the New York papers and has been reprinted in the dailies on both sides of us and is about as true as most of the articles that appear in the New York papers from Greenwich. In the first place, Mr. Rockefeller has not been in Greenwich in some time. He has been very sick for the last month and has not yet recovered from an attack of appendicitis. As, regard, as regards his personally negotiating for land, that is perfect nonsense. Put it in to make the article go, quote-unquote, in New York. All the rest of the article is purely imagination. The company has not decided to build a new depot here and has taken no steps whatsoever in that direction. What the company may do in the near future, no one knows, but there is this much about it on which the people of the town are agreed. Greenwich needs a new depot and more grounds about it. We do not understand is why the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Company treats the above the way it does as the matter of depot accommodations. Hmm, well, that's a good question. And so, unfortunately, that is yet another example of what we call today in the years of the uh, early 20th century, 21st century, fake news. Well, it is time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we report on those individuals who, I guess, threw their own fireworks uh, through the committing of crimes in the history of Greenwich, Connecticut. I have two stories that uh, were featured in the Greenwich News and Graphic on the same day. That would be June 26, 1925. And uh, they, they are as follows. The first one is headlined, Peddling Without License, Stalking Huckster's Mistake Was in Soliciting Len Clark. This story goes as follows. For peddling goods without a license, Daniel Florin of Jamaica, Long Island, was before the borough court last Friday morning. Florin came to town last Thursday and engaged a room for two days on Ridge Street. He had two suitcases filled with ladies' stockings and gentlemen's socks, which he was offering for sale. His landlady told him that it would be necessary to obtain a license, but as it was 4.30 in the afternoon, when he started out, he decided to wait until the following day before obtaining a license and look the field over. Unfortunately for him, the first man to whom he offered the sale of his goods was Leonard Clark, president of the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce. The police were notified, and later Officer George Robbins apprehended Florin in the act of showing the stockings to a woman on the steamboat road and placed him under arrest. He had made no sale so far as is known. Judge Meade uh, <laughs> questioned Florin very closely as to whether he was not in town some ten days previous and asked him on the street for a certain address on West Elm Street. 
Florin denied that he had been in Greenwich before, although Judge Meade requested that he gaze upon him very closely for the purpose of ascertaining if he had not seen him before. Asked by Prosecutor White if he was willing to leave town, Florin intimated that he liked Greenwich and desired to take out a license to peddle his goods here. Judge Meade imposed a fine of $10 in costs and warned Florin that he must take out a license if he were to peddle in Greenwich. Well, that's fair, I guess. The next story is as follows. The headline is, Adds insult to injury. Man's auto is bumped and his face is slapped by a woman. (laughs) While returning from the Volunteer Firemen's Carnival here late Saturday night, James O'Curry of Ellendale Avenue, Portchester, operating a car, had a narrow escape from injuries when another machine driven by William S. Moore of Butler Street, Coscob, coming in the opposite direction, veered across the street and struck his car, which was on the far right-hand side of the road. The accident happened at near McKeever's Garage in Glenville. Moore was later arrested by Officer Herbert Bryson, charged with reckless driving, evading responsibility, and operating a car under while under the influence of liquor. Hmm. In the borough court Monday morning, Moore pleaded, quote-unquote, not guilty to the three counts. A curry told the court that Moore, after hitting his machine, continued on, a young woman who was with him steering the car. Curry gave chase in his car and overtook Moore at the corner of Lake Avenue and Glenville Road. I think that would be today's um, Lake Avenue Circle, where he stalled his car. Anthony Stamboni of St. Regent Street, Porchester, who was in the Arcuri car, corroborated Arcuri's statement. He said that after they had overtaken the Moore car, the woman in the latter machine got out and slapped him in the face. <laughs> he seemed to think that the young woman was more to blame for the accident than was Moore. Hmm. Officer Bryson testified that Moore was under the influence of liquor, being unsteady on his feet. Asked if he desired to testify in his own behalf, Moore replied, quote, These gentlemen have told nothing but the truth, unquote. Judge Meade imposed a fine of $100 in costs and a jail sentence of 30 days. Later in the day, the jail sentence was remitted. Well, as we start to conclude today's July 4, 2023 show, I wanted to relate to you uh, a story from our family lore um, about an incident that happened. It was actually a raid on the um, on the Mead Farm, um, which today uh, still exists at the corner of uh, Riversville Road and Cliffdale Road on the northwestern side. Um, there was a large house that unfortunately was uh, demolished. Uh, however, the original 1745 Benjamin Mead house um, is still there um, over on the uh, the western side of uh, Riversville Road. It is still there. By the way, um, it was purchased about uh, a year or so ago by a, um, a gentleman. He and his family live there and has done a magnificent job um, uh, restoring the, the house as well as 
uh, opening up the um, the property, looking uh, quite a bit, I suppose, as it did back uh, a couple of hundred years ago. Really remarkable experience, and um, and and we thank him and his um, family. One of the things that we have on that property is one of our ancestral cemeteries. I will uh, explain the significance of that, but I would like to tell you this story first. Um, this is uh, featured in uh, Spencer P. Mead's um, Ye History of Ye Town of Greenwich on page 147. And the story is as follows. Benjamin Mead, the father of Captain Sylvanus Mead, moved to Quaker Ridge, that would be North Greenwich. He also had a son, uh, Benjamin, who kept the old homestead formerly occupied by Solomon Stoddard Mead. During the Revolutionary War, the old place was raided by a party of British and Tories. Obadiah, son of Benjamin, was then quite a lad. His sisters Anna and Phoebe, who were younger, hid with their mother in the cellar in the old house, uh, as the Redcoats marched up the road, and their father and the other girls, Mary and Theodosia, barricaded the doors and windows while Obadiah, the only son, solicitous for the cattle without, uh, drove them into the barnyard and then beat a hasty retreat to a neighbor's barn. An unfriendly Tory, knowing the fact, informed the British soldiers who surrounded the barn, threatening to set uh, a fire uh, to it unless he came out. He, too brave to surrender, jumped from the barn and ran across the orchard toward the rocks above Dyspepsia Lane. By the way, Dyspepsia Lane. Don't ask me where that name came from, but the um, that, that uh, place is, is now Cliffdale Road. But the British followed. Seeing that escape was impossible, Obadiah surrendered, only to be immediately fired at and instantly killed. The ball passed through his left arm and entered his side. For several generations, the place of his burial was a sacred spot to the members of the family, and now, though unknown, it is not forgotten in history. I will have an update on that. The coat he wore showing the bullet holes and bloodstains has been preserved all these years and is now in the possession of Sarah C. Mead. I will have an update on that, too. After killing the son, the Redcoats forced their way into the house, but unable to find the father, they departed, taking with them the horse and all of the geese. Now, the updates that I have on this are as follows. Um, it, it is uh, more or less true that the cemetery or the burial spot um, had been lost. Some of you may remember, especially if you are um, uh, longtime residents and lived here in the, um, of the late 1980s, um, I was a board member at the Greenwich Historical Society, and we launched a first-of-its-kind uh, private-public uh, uh, partnership, if you will, uh, that involved the documentation of um, Greenwich's uh, over 63 cemeteries and burying grounds uh, scattered throughout the uh, the town. Um, and um, one of those cemeteries, which had been lost for many years, was the one where Obadiah Mead and other members of his family um, had been um, interred. Uh, I mentioned uh, that, uh, that farmstead at the uh, northwest corner of Riversville Road and uh, Cliffdale Road, no longer called Dyspepsia Lane, thank goodness. Um, but um, anyway, what happened was that, um, and I hope I never forget this, but I believe it was uh, in the year eight, 1989, uh, I went on the property. I was very good friends uh, with the owner at that time, Miss Stephanie Edgel, who was a uh, cousin, by the way, of the late Nelson Rockefeller. She, of course, um, uh, sadly died a number of, um, of years ago. But um, 
uh, we got to be very good friends. She was very, very interested um, in the history of the place. And between me and uh, William E. Fitch Jr., um, who was very knowledgeable of um, uh, of many things about the town of Greenwich, he was the town historian after all, um, I was able to get permission to go on the property, as I had done many times in the past, uh, and um, this time to go prospecting around, if you will, looking for the cemetery. Now, the property was very, very badly overgrown. Um, and the day that I went up there, um, it, it was kind of like the weather is right now. It was very, very hot. In fact, I remember that it was about literally between 90 and 100 degrees um, on that uh, July. And it was a July 4 holiday, by the way. Um, and in the house that was nearby where we found the, the cemetery were two African-American uh, women um, who were the daughters of the uh, caretaker um, of, the, of the property when Solomon Stoddard Mead um, owned the, uh, the place uh, back in the, um, in the early 20th century. He sold it, uh, incidentally, to his son-in-law, which was kind of nice. Um, and, um, and so they were leaning out uh, the windows and they were saying, no, move to the right, no, move to the left, somewhere, this, that, and the other. And the first day that I went up there, um, <laughs> things did not go very, very well. I was on my hands and knees. I was sweating. It was just absolutely awful. And I promised, though, because I was bound to determine to, um, to find this uh, cemetery, that, um, that I would come back the next day. I should mention that all of the stones had uh, been laid flat. Uh, so there were none that were really, um, you know, uh, up as they uh, as they usually are, um, and I just said, please, I got to come back, which I did, and I had gotten into the same predicament, and what happened was that I had just gotten ready to give up for the day when I stumbled and fell, and when I stumbled and fell, I looked over at what I stumbled over, and lo and behold, my foot had hit what is properly or, or commonly called a footstone. If you see these in cemeteries, they're very, very small stones. They usually have the initials of the person um, with the corresponding grave. The, um, uh, the, uh, the main um, uh, gravestone would be um, up opposite that. And so it was a marble marker, as I um, recall very well, and I was just thrilled, um, you know, beyond words. So we went up and, you know, and so on and so forth, uh, and um, began an arduous uh uh, project to restore the uh, the cemetery that included um, you know family members, Boy Scouts, everybody that you could possibly imagine. If I, by the way, the restoration of that um, of that cemetery uh, led to the founding uh, by myself and um, others of the historic Mead Family Burying Grounds Association. Um, we have the ownership of um, one cemetery uh, site, which is on the um, uh, the Koskov Mill Pond on the east side. Um, and then we found uh, this particular uh, spot in, um, what is it, 1988, 1989. And, uh, and then we have the stewardship over a, um, a small family plot over at um, number two Taconic Road, right near the intersection with uh, uh, North Street. So that was really wonderful. And the reason why is because um, we are 99% sure, of course, that Obadiah Mead um, is um, interred there. Uh, as are other members of the family. We have uprighted all of the stones. There are many, many field stone markers there, um, and they are not uh, marked, and there are no records of who is interred there. It's a fascinating cemetery, 
uh, and um, and we are just thrilled uh, that it is in such wonderful uh, shape these days. Now, the article that I just met, or the excerpt from uh, Spencer Mead's book that I just uh, uh, quoted for you, uh, mentions uh, the Cote War showing bullet holes and blood stains has been preserved all these years. Um, that is not in the, uh, in the hands of family anymore. It is actually in the archive collections, uh, the Mead collection, I believe, of the Greenwich Historical Society archives. Um, it is not exhibited very often. It is a very, very delicate um, uh, item, if you, if you can imagine, of course. Um, but it is still there. We do have uh, pictures of it. And um, it, it is a reminder, all of this, um, that freedom comes with a cost. And it is one that we do not uh, forget. And I urge you, um, in whatever way that, uh, that you can, is to not forget that, um, that the freedoms that we cherish today and have been cherished by generations before us um, came at the expense of life and, and liberty and what have you and property. Um, a sad thing to say, but it is one that on this July 4 and every other July 4th uh, in the past and in the future, um, is something to be reminded of. My friends, I want you to write down a web address and a phone number that I'm going to give you in just a moment. And it is for a business that I am very, very, very happy to, to recommend to you, especially if you have any need for a uh, tree service. And uh, goodness knows, here in Greenwich, Connecticut, we have more trees, I think, that we know what to do with. And, um, and the uh, services of a tree service is one that is, um, uh, of course, vital uh, to um, those of us uh, who have to deal with them. <laughs> um, my Kalapka Tree Service, LLC, is my recommendation this month. I'm going to choose a business each month out of the year, and I'm going to freely promote that business. And that's what I'm doing here. This is one that I unreservedly recommend uh, to you. My Kalupka Tree Service came um, at my request at a property that um, I and my family have. It includes one of our ancestral family cemeteries, and I needed to have some tree work done. By the way, there's more, and I'm going to have Mike um, and his crew again, and they just did a fantastic job, uh, and I unreservedly uh, recommend My Kalupka Tree Service, LLC. And he is a tree care service provider here in Greenwich, Connecticut. He is the owner and operator, 19 years of experience in tree and plant health care. Uh, his service provides uh, services ranging from ornamental tree pruning to large tree removal, complete health, uh, plant health care services. Um, he has 24-hour emergency service is available. Um, you can call for a free estimate. And his phone number is 203-622-8737. That's 203-622-8737. His website address is treeservicegreenwichct.com. Again, that's treeservicegreenwichct.com. And so please, I strongly recommend Mike Halepka uh, without reservation. He and his crew did a fantastic job. And if they can do a fantastic job for me, I can assure you that they're going to do a fantastic job for you as well. Well, my friends, I want to thank you for tuning in to the Tuesday, 4th of July, 2023 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast. 
this weekly podcast is hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. This town that we hold near and dear to our hearts is one that stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. We love to call this place home because it is our home. <laughs> the Greenwich in Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurological Services, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Contact me if you'd like to at Greenwich in Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show. Listen to past shows by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. The next show will be released and is scheduled for July 11th. That's next Tuesday, 2023. You know, as always, I'm very grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm in celebrating and preserving the history and heritage of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. We are very, very grateful for all those um, who take on that cause and um, and, and do so with vigor and enthusiasm. Uh, we, we just are so overjoyed to have you um, among us. And so, my friends, uh, I bid you farewell this day. Please go out there, have a safe, wonderful, and a fantastic 4th of July 2023 holiday. I look forward to being with you next week. Take care. Bye-bye now. 